Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic, and today we celebrate the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. In Psalm 29, which is part of the readings at Mass today, the psalmist says, The God of glory thunders, and in his temple all say glory. The Lord is enthroned above the flood. The Lord is enthroned as King forever. In the Gospel today, Jesus descends into the waters of the baptism of John the Baptist and tells John that it must be so to fulfill all righteousness. The reading links the readings about John the Baptist at Advent uh, to the story of Jesus' baptism. As Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, he bears the weight of sin as death. He's paying the debts of all humanity. And it's behind this understanding, this deep Israelite and Jewish understanding of sin as weight and as debt is the underpinning of Jesus telling John that the reason for his baptism is that it will fulfill all righteousness. You know, this Matthew gives us some signs as to what the baptism of Jesus is about. Because the question people always ask is, why does Jesus, the incarnation of God, born without sin, why does he have to be baptized by John the Baptist, who baptizes for the forgiveness of sins? This is John's query when he says to Jesus, you should be baptizing me, I shouldn't be baptizing you. But look at the signs that Matthew, the storyteller, gives us. First, it's geography. He's being baptized in the Jordan River, and that's the boundary between ancient Israel and the rest of the, of the world. It's the place where the exodus ends, Moses dies, and the new people of Israel enter across the Jordan into the promised land. And if you remember the story that's told in the book of Joshua, it's the priests that enter the water and the waters of the Jordan back upstream and disappear downstream as the people walk through the Jordan riverbed into the promised land, just as their fathers had, had escaped uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian chariots and charioteers when Moses held up his hands and, and parted the waters of the Red Sea. So it's the Jordan as this liminal space, as this boundary. It's a sign of a new exodus. And so the second is that the heavens are open. The second sign, the heavens are opened, right? Um, do you remember Elijah's taken up into heaven? He too takes his cloak in uh, 1 Kings, strikes the river Jordan and it parts and he crosses it. In Jesus' case, during the baptism, the waters don't part, uh, but the heavens open. And just as an olive tree emerged from the waters of the flood, so Jesus emerges from the waters of John's baptism. And that leads to the third sign that John gives us. And that's the sign of the dove that descends upon Jesus. Remember, it says that the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And you're supposed to remember Noah. Remember the waters of the flood that, uh, that wiped out sin on the earth, and Noah knew that it was 
going to be safe to land because a, a dove came back to him bearing an, a, a branch of an olive tree, a twig from an olive tree. And so it's a sign that the waters are receding. The power of sin is going away and a new exodus is underway, that a new land is emerging, that we are emerging from this time of sin. And then Jesus is Messiah, the fourth sign. You remember King David is anointed with oil by Samuel as a sign that he's the Messiah. But there's something greater, someone greater than, than David the king here, because Jesus isn't anointed with oil at his baptism. He's anointed instead by the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, Advent, Christmas, and baptism are linked um, to the story of Holy Week, which is the Last Supper, the, the passion and death of our Lord in his resurrection. Think about the link between Christmas and the Paschal mystery. In Christmas, remember, Jesus is laid in a manger, a place where animals eat. At, uh, in Holy Week, he'll be laid in his tomb and he'll give himself his food. Instead of being food for just the donkey and the ox, he becomes food for all humanity. Remember in Christmas, Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes when he's laid in the manger. At, at Easter, during the Easter Triduum, Jesus will be wrapped in a shroud as he laid in his tomb. At the Epiphany, if you remember, that was last week, Jesus given gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift that's given to a king because when Jesus is crucified, uh, the charge over his head is that he's king of the Jews. Frankincense is used in the temple in Jerusalem and, made, and used as an incense offering to God because it's a priestly thing. It's a priestly offering to God. And Jesus is both priest and sacrifice on the cross. And then myrrh is offered by one of the kings because myrrh is used to prepare a dead body. And it tells us that it's through Jesus's death that uh, the salvation of the world will be accomplished. In baptism, this is part of the whole story of Christmas, Jesus descends into the water and rises, just as in uh, Easter week, the Paschal mystery. He'll descend into death and rise. Um, the prayer of Isaiah is fulfilled, that the heavens will be open, because at his death, if you remember, it's the veil of the temple that's torn in two, so that we see the face of the mercy of God. And when the heavens are open in baptism, of the, in the baptism of the Lord that we recount today, once again, the heavens are open. So how does all of this fit with the great story of Israel uh, and the story of Jesus? And that's what this podcast is about. An interesting song choice, don't you think? Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Because we're still in Christmas time. But the whole point of the baptism of the Lord is that it links the story of Christmas to the Paschal mystery. And at the heart of it is why does Jesus have to be baptized? People say, 
well, he was born without sin, so why did he have to descend into the waters of baptism? Well, the fathers of the church would say he did it to make the waters of baptism pure and efficacious for us. But underlying it are two understandings of sin that Jesus inherited from his mothers and fathers who were brought up in the tradition of the Old Testament, and that is the people of Israel. So the key to understanding the religious sensibility about how Jesus talks to us uh, about salvation, we have to understand something about uh, the Jewish faith that Jesus understood. Here's what I'd ask you to think about. First, how did ancient Israel understand sin? Second, how did ancient Israel's understanding of sin grow and develop over time? And third, how did Jesus use these understandings of sin in order to explain why what he did in his death and resurrection saved us from sin? The first is to understand the first stage of how Israel understood sin. Think about it like this. How did Hebrew speakers understand sin? In the Old Testament, especially in the Torah, sin was seen as a weight. Uh, the best example is from Leviticus chapter 16. And we all remember how the priest on the Day of Atonement makes atonement for sin. What he does is he gets two goats and a bull. He takes one goat and the bull and he sacrifices them. And then he sprinkles the blood of the bull and the one goat that he sacrificed onto the people. And then the second goat is brought out before him. When he is finished purging the sanctuary and the people, he has the scapegoat, actually a pack animal, brought before him. And it says this in Leviticus 16. Laying both hands on its head, he shall confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites and their trespasses, including all their sins, and so put them on the goat's head. He shall, have them, he shall then have it led into the wilderness by an attendant. The goat will carry off all their iniquities to an isolated region. Think about it physically, that pushing down on the goat is this ritual sign of imposing the weight of sin on the goat. That's why the goat's called the scapegoat. But what happens with that understanding of the weight of sin, which I would point out is rooted in our experience of sin, that sense of weight, of carrying something heavy on our hearts? Well, how we think is so influenced by the language and the concepts that we think in. We take our feelings and human experiences and we express them, we articulate them in language. So what happens to Israel's Hebrew faith when change, cultural change comes into Israel? And that's really the second part of how Israel thought about sin. And it's about when Israel changed from speaking purely Hebrew to Aramaic becoming the dominant language in the country. How did that happen? Well, you remember Israel was taken off into the Babylonian captivity. They were freed by Cyrus the Persian. 
and the Persians were Aramaic speakers. That's how Aramaic came into the land of Israel. And so they began to think differently, to express differently the human religious experience. And in Aramaic, the same realities were talked about as debt. They didn't really, the Aramaic speakers didn't have the same background of the scapegoat that the Hebrew speakers had. Hebrew, the rabbis, the Hebrew speakers never jettisoned the understanding of Leviticus. What they did is they added another understanding that they could flesh out the human reality of sin because it's not just a weight that we feel, but boy, when we've really hurt someone, we feel like we owe something, that we have to make that up. And that is the experience of sin as debt. You know where it's expressed most clearly? Yes, in the later writings of Judaism. In the book of Tobit, for example, Tobit told his son Tobiah, Give alms from your possessions. Do not turn your face away from the poor, so that God's face will not be turned away from you. Give in proportion to what you own. If you have great wealth, give alms out of your abundance. If you have but little, do not be afraid to give alms even of that little. You will be storing up goodly treasure for yourself against the day of adversity. For almsgiving delivers from death and keeps one from entering into the darkness. Well, that's Tobit. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something Jesus said? Yes, obviously it does, because Jesus was an Aramaic speaker. Let me give you three examples where Jesus speaks of sin as debt and echoes the voice of those Aramaic-speaking rabbis from that time of the Second Temple following the Persian conquest of Israel. Here's, the first, here's three examples, all from Matthew. The first example is, Jesus tells his followers, just like Tobit told Tobias in Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So this relationship of spiritual treasure to spiritual debt. Here's the second example. It's an obvious one. You know, in when we pray the Our Father, our current translation, because of how we think, our linguistic background, we're not completely comfortable of thinking about sin as debt because of all the problems of the Reformation. And so we've talked about sins as trespassing because we think of sin now as violating God's law. But that's really a European understanding and a legalistic understanding that comes out of our Western European experience. When Jesus taught the Our Father in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to pray that the Father forgives us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted against us. And then maybe the most famous example is this third example. Do you remember the story in Matthew where the rich young man comes up to Jesus and he has many possessions? What do I need, Master, to enter in, uh, into eternal life, he says. And Jesus says, well, you've read the commandments. And, and 
The young man says, yeah, I honor my parents. I don't kill anyone. I don't commit adultery. I don't lie, cheat, steal, or covet. And Jesus loves him. But then he says, there was one more thing you must do to be perfect. If you would be perfect, he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. This is all coming out of this understanding of death that's expressed in Tobit and is really dominates the rabbinic literature in the second temple, temple period. What does that do for us? Well, it gives us an understanding of religion. First, that God speaks to us through human metaphor. Um, that if we take metaphors too far, then we get into trouble. But to understand uh, sin as a weight and sin as a debt uh, gives us a sense uh, of how we understand uh, our own human experience. Even violating the laws of God gives us a, a sense of the boundaries of human experience. But the key here is to also see uh, the very nature of religion as it's expressed in the Old Testament and in Christianity. Religious ideas develop over time. The measure of real development, as St. John Henry Newman uh, says in his essay on the development of doctrine, is that real development, true development, probes more deeply into the human experience of God and opens up the experience of our mothers and fathers in faith. Our understanding of the past gives us a basis for a deeper understanding of Christ. For us, the, at the creed we say at Mass, we remember that it developed over centuries, and it's the creed which helps us understand Scripture and the Trinity and the role of the Church and the truths about Christ's faith, that he is fully human, fully divine. Uh, light from light, true God from true God, we say in the faith. We do that because it helps us to understand the scriptural witness without getting sucked too deep or in the wrong directions on the metaphors that, uh, that uh, we are given in Scripture. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says that it's the wall that is built on a cliffside that allows kids to play because they're not afraid about going over the cliff. And so it is with the creed or understanding, our doctrinal understanding uh, that helps us stand more deeply into Scripture that keeps us from flying off in some of the weird directions that Christianity has gone in. We creatively engage the faith of our fathers and mothers as we seek to understand our own experience of God. Remember that our conscience is the primordial voice of God within us. And the language of our conscience sometimes uses a sense or the feeling of weight or the sense or the feeling that we owe somebody, namely God. Religiously, intellectually, and linguistically, we articulate this reality as sin. And so when Jesus talks to us about spiritualities, all he really has to use because we are limited by language is metaphor, language, and the concepts that our culture has. But contained in those is the truth of our relationship with God. That's why we say the Gospels are God cloaked in human words.
So how did Jesus and his disciples think about baptism? Because this is the link between the incarnation and Holy Week. Jesus goes from the sacrament of baptism to his baptism in blood on Calvary, just as he drew a link between his body and blood to the crucifixion at the Last Supper. Just consider this, how Jesus expresses sacramental realities and how he teaches. And here's Matthew chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, which we'll have later this year. And so do you remember uh, the mother of James and John's comes up to Jesus and says, let one of my sons sit on your left and one of them sit on the right. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 20. What do you wish? Command that these two sons of mine sit one at your right and the other at the left in your left in your kingdom. And Jesus said in reply, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They said to him, we can. He replied, my cup you will indeed drink, but to sit at my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those whom has been prepared by my father. Interesting, isn't it? He draws the connection between the cup at the Last Supper with, the cup, with um, his death on the cross. He gets the story from Mark, but think how Mark tells it. Mark in chapter 10, Luke has the same stories. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus says in Mark and Luke. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they both say they can. But what you see is the link in the sacramental economy between baptism and Eucharist and what happens on the cross, the payment of the debt of sin, the burden of the weight of sin. You know, Mark, out of all four evangelists, is the only one that actually starts his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. Because baptism for Mark is how you enter into eternal life. You know, Isaiah was the first reading. And ever since the first week of Advent to the present, it's Isaiah that's been the one consistent link between all of the stories about preparing for the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, the story of the Holy Family, Mary as the mother of God, the Epiphany, all of these stories of Advent and Christmas. But Isaiah also kind of bats clean up. He's the last voice of the Old Testament when it comes to the baptism of the Lord. And here's the reading from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And remember, it's the dove that descends upon Jesus' baptism. And as Jesus says, he fulfills all righteousness in his baptism. Pope Benedict XVI, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, said this about the baptism of the Lord. Looking at the events in light of the cross and resurrection, the Christian people realized what had happened. Jesus loaded the burden of all mankind's guilt upon his shoulders. He bore it down into the depths of the Jordan. He inaugurated his public activity by stepping into the place of sinners. His inaugural gesture is an anticipation of the cross. Baptism is an acceptance of death for the sins of humanity. And the voice that calls out, this is my beloved son over the baptismal waters is an anticipatory reference to the resurrection. 
This also explains why in his own discourses, Jesus uses the word baptism to refer to his death. And he refers back to Mark and Luke that I referred to. Only from this starting point can we understand Christian baptism. Jesus' baptism anticipated his death on the cross and the heavenly voice proclaimed an anticipation of the resurrection. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. And so people always ask, what happens to people who aren't baptized? And the church's answer is, we don't know. We know that baptism is the way into eternal life. But we don't think that the sacraments of the church or the preaching of the church limits God. We should not presume on God's mercy, but we should follow Jesus and do what Jesus says. Because it's at the end of Matthew, the very last chapter, when Jesus says to his disciples, go forth to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, that's what we do to this day. Hey, sign up for Oro Valley Catholic. Uh, give it to your friends. And you can see more in- information on that on our website or from your favorite podcast provider.